So hello and welcome back to this Small Animal Clinical podcast series brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Vicky Lipscomb to the podcast. Vicky is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgeons, a senior lecturer in small animal surgery and head of the soft tissue surgery service here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much for joining me today, Vicky. Um, so today, Vicky, I'd like to talk about portosystemic shunts. I kind of went around the houses thinking we're going to shorten that to something, but I've sort of decided we're just going to call them portosystemic shunts, um, which is an area that I know that you have a, a particular interest in. And I guess the best place to start is by asking you to please kind of summarize essentially what a portosystemic shunt is and what are the different types and sort of whether that has any implications for the patient. And then we'll go on and talk a little bit about kind of more pathophys stuff, if that's okay. Thanks, Shailen. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Um, yes, a portosystemic shunt is essentially an abnormal vessel. Um, they are often um, congenital in cats and dogs, um, and they may be inherited. Um, Can you do me a favour and clarify to the listener the yeah. difference in congenital and inherited congenital is something that you are born with and inherited is something that has been inherited so you could be born with a cleft palate for example that is therefore congenital but it's not inherited okay. whereas we know specifically because work has been done in for example Yorkshire Terriers and Irish Wolfhounds that some shunts are actually inherited as well as congenital so um, would it be crazy to say that you could have uh, inherited shunt that would not manifest itself until later in life doesn't it, have to be it might not manifest itself to later in life but the animal will be born with it yeah. so it still be congenital as opposed to acquired shunts okay. which are much more common in people and not very common in in cats and dogs what's interesting about congenital portosystemic shunts in cats and dogs is that um it's not an uncommon referral. It, it is. It is uncommon in that um, it's. It's not f- seen that frequently in general practice. Um, obviously, we have a, a referral population here, but it's extremely uncommon in human medicine. And normally, what we do in the veterinary world is look and see what's been done <laughs> in in human medicine first. Uh-oh. And there are almost no reports of congenital portosystemic shunts. That's definitely interesting. And um, so, so you said it's an abnormal vessel. So where does this? The abnormal vessel, um, the clue is in the name a little bit. The abnormal vessel is from the portal vein or any vein draining into the portal vein. So anywhere in the splanchnic system, that would include the splenic veins, any of the gastrointestinal veins. Um, So anything that drains into the portal vein, which is therefore um, due to, to enter the liver. But instead of just flowing straight to the liver, there is a branch off the portal vein or a tributary of it going to the caudal vena cava or another systemic vein, such as the azygous, but say the most typical would be portal vein to, to call vena cava. And therefore, this vessel, instead of going to the liver, um, carries a lot of blood that bypasses the liver and okay, the and so, um, important processes that go on in the liver. So in some ways, we, we, can, we sort of say that there, so the portosystemic shunt is a kind of parent term. And then you could, if you wanted to, talk about Exactly. There are lots of different types, but the the principle is all the same. Okay. And the principle is essentially bypassing of the liver. And we'll come we'll come on in a minute to talk about um, what things we care about um, in terms of what's bypassing the liver. Um, And then, I guess, in terms of other types, really. So we've sort of touched on the congenital acquired thing. 
Are there other sort of types that we see or other classifications that we have? Yeah, so just to further clarify the, the congenital types, um, as I've said, they may be from, from the portal vein to, to any systemic vein, but they also may be intra or extra hepatic. So if the abnormal vessel is going around from the portal vein to the caudal vena cava outside the liver parenchyma, it's an extra hepatic shunt. But some shunts go from a portal vein branch inside the liver to a hepatic vein or the caudal vena cava inside the liver, and that's an intrahepatic shunt. All of those are still single congenital shunts as opposed to multiple acquired shunts, which are quite different, um, not commonly seen in, in young animals. They are usually due to chronic end-stage liver disease that creates portal hypertension. And, and that's a situation that's much more common in humans as well, often due to alcoholic or end-stage cirrhotic liver disease. And so, so acquired are usually multiple as well? Definitely. It would be crazy to think that you get a single acquired shunt. They're always multiple, They're even always if multiple. one looks much larger than okay, another. Fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Excellent. And um, do we tend to see kind of certain types more or less commonly in dogs versus cats and different breeds? Or? We see dogs more commonly than cats. Um, and within dogs, as a generalization, we often see extra hepatic shunts in small breed dogs, but not exclusively. Yorkshire Terriers, Shih Tzus, um, West Highland White Terriers, Norfolk Terriers, all those little breeds of dogs very commonly present. Um, whereas large breed dogs, Irish Wolfhounds, Labradors, often have intrahepatic shunts, but there's always exceptions to every okay. rule. With cats, um, the vast majority are obviously domestic short hairs um, and the vast majority extrahepatic. If we do see an intrahepatic shunt in a cat, it's often a left-sided patent ductus venosus. Okay, and um, again, this is probably a question that well, I don't know you might tell me there is an answer to, but do we, do we know why there's this distinction between bigger dogs and smaller dogs? I, we don't know, but we know that Yorkshire Terriers is an inherited component, as I said, and the same with Irish Wolfhounds, so I'm presuming it's to do with the, the inheritance pattern of that particular morphology. Interesting. Um, and then, so following on from that, um, so we've obviously said that the, sort of the consequence, I guess, of having a shunt is that stuff bypasses the liver, that's supposed mm-hmm. to go to the liver. But could you kind of elaborate a little bit more about that and sort of what are the consequences of having that bypass in place? Sure. So normally when an animal eats a meal, um, it gets digested, the protein gets broken down in the gut, and this creates a variety of substances, including ammonia and and other um, toxins, as it were, that normally gets delivered exclusively to the liver via the portal vein for breakdown before going uh, into the systemic circulation in the rest of the body. If you have a shunt those um, breakdown products of digestion have free access to the main circulation before they've been broken down and detoxified. In the liver. And um, so ammonia has always been the main player, Mm -hmm. right? But I'm pretty sure over my career there's always been other things that have sort of made a bidding for the title, if you like. And you kind of hear about other stuff and then they sort of go away. And like, do we have... Is there other other molecules that we worry about, really, or is ammonia, really? There are plenty of other molecules, such as um, macaptans and um, short-chain fatty acids and and lots of others. But ammonia is still the main player. And and the the reason that ammonia is also very useful is because we can measure it. Um, But it definitely is one of the main products. Okay, cool. Um, so if I'm a vet in practice, what sort of signs might alert me to the possibility that this patient in front of me might have a portosystemic shunt? So 
are there some classical signs or are there some common things that, you know, at least might be flags or is it all quite non-specific? Sure. And I, I actually think there's a real art to this because um, I'm in a very fortunate position that most animals get referred to me because a shunt has already been suspected or diagnosed. And if you're a vet in practice and you have literally hundreds of patients coming through your practice mm. each year, probably only one a year is going to be a shunt. And it's picking that patient out from the others that's a real art when you're seeing lots of other different cases. Um, some of them do come in with more classical signs. So many of them, you know, sometimes 80 or 90% will come in with neurological signs. But not all of those neurological signs are very severe. And so it can still be really hard to pick them out from, from what is just slightly abnormal behavior or depression. Mm. Um, to someone who uh, actually has a shunt, a patient that actually has a shunt. Clearly, if they're seizuring, that's a very specific and, and typical sign that will then obviously be followed up. But if the patient just comes in and is a bit depressed, it could mm. be any number of things. Um, and not all patients present with neurological signs. Some of them will ha have gastrointestinal signs. And we see lots of puppies, obviously in general practice, that have a bit of vomiting, a bit of diarrhea. Mm. And, and most instances, they've just scavenged something and that's all it is. And so it's about looking for repeat offenders and seeing that this puppy's actually come back several times and seen several people in the practice. And maybe it's a bit small too. And the index of suspicion starts building and it's just about having that open mind and just having it in the back of your mind and, and deciding whether or not something needs to be pursued further. So it's interesting because I, I guess like when you were talking, I was thinking, um, you know, like we sort of say about Addison's disease, it should be on our list of differentials, a bunch of stuff, mm -hmm. right? And then we sometimes have this debate about, well, how much are we going to test for it? Mm -hmm. And I guess I was listening to you thinking, well, at what point do you say, well, I'm going to check mm. in case, and then you don't want to over-test every animal yeah. that has a possible yeah. sign, and then you don't want to miss it too. And So I think it's about looking for that pattern and thinking, mm. okay, actually this isn't the first time the puppies come back with vomiting and diarrhea, and actually it is also a bit small, and perhaps you've... you've um, neutered a young patient and it's taken a long time to recover from anaesthetic it might have just been cold but you then start to think you, you know and it's about I, I, don't, I wouldn't advertise uh, advocate mm. going out and testing every single animal but it's about mm. building the picture and saying is there anything else that, that can co corroborate that yeah. yeah so so basically I think that's I think that's great and um I guess the um the one thing that I don't know I suppose traditionally people probably remember from the teaching about this is that whole you know, meal, it postprandial yep. exacerbation. Yep. Now, how real a phenomenon is that, do you think? That's often reported in the um, patients and the clients that I speak to. Um, so it's a really good question to ask because not many diseases mm. um, do get worse after feeding. And that's another thing that would, that would then corroborate your decision to perhaps take things further. Yeah. Um, head pressing, circling, more unusual signs. If, if they report that their puppy's just a bit quiet, if you ask for those more sort of unusual signs, you might um, get a clue. And, and cats tend to also salivate excessively, which is quite a good clue. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, um, you know, we doing, doing less so now, obviously, but doing first opinion emergency work, I'd sometimes see patients sort of salivating, cats often. And, like, have they, and the client would be like, oh, I think they might have poisoned themselves and might have mm -hmm. licked something. And is it painful? Is it this? Yeah. So, you know, it's a sort of weird, it's a kind of sign that's a bit like, mm -hmm. oh, don't know what to do with hypersalivation. Um, and one of the things I know that we can sometimes see are patients that have urinary tract signs. And I guess, could you explain a little bit why that is and also sort of say in your experience what sort of 
uh, empirical percentage of patients sure. do you think present with sure. urinary tract signs? So I've said that um, if the products of digestion are not broken down, um, then they build up. And in the liver, what should be happening is the urea cycle. So ammonia should be converted to urea. And that's not happening in a patient with a shunt because the blood is bypassing. So you get low urea on your blood test and you get high ammonia. And that high ammonia will predispose your patient to certainly ammonium biurate crystals and if they're really unlucky um, urate stones and um, I had a little look up before I came here and the percentage I can give you from from one of the series that I looked at was about 20% of patients will present with that as their main sign as opposed to neurological signs. And then presumably we have other cases where we will find evidence of it but it wasn't a main part of their clinical presentation. Yeah, one of the things I always say to the students is if you remove a stone from a patient and it's a urate stone always do something to look for the underlying cause mm. because there's always a cause. It might not be a shunt, it might be another type of liver disease or it might be a Dalmatian with an mm. allantone defect, um, but there's always a cause for it. Um, so it's, cool. it's worth looking. That's good advice. Um, and then I guess sort of one big question is, um, is it possible for kind of vets in first opinion practice to make this diagnosis definitively or is it something that has to be done in specialist referral centers? Sure. One thing I've just remembered about the urinary tract signs I just want to mention before I forget is that it is more common to have urinary tract signs as your only presenting sign if you're an older patient. So if you're a patient over five years, then you've probably got to that stage because you haven't presented with neurological Mm. signs and it takes longer to present. And actually that's a good thing to have because patients that are non-encephalopathic and present with urinary tract signs are likely to do better um, and have a complete ligation at surgery. Okay, that's cool. Um, cool. And in terms of diagnosis? Back to diagnosis. Um, the w- When you have an index of suspicion, one of the things um, that you're first going to do is a haematology and biochemistry to, again, get an idea of whether or not you should be pursuing it further. And after that, it's very easy to do a bile acid stimulation test in practice. You can measure ammonia if you have a, a, a test for it in your practice, but you can't send ammonia off because it's very labile. But a bile acid stimulation test, for example, in a typical young patient with typical neurological signs will give you a very strong suspicion. So you can have a very good idea and that's often how patients are referred in you can't make a diagnosis of a shunt unless you either image it or visualize it and that is quite tricky to do because um, it's a very specialist level of ultrasound um, or you need a CT or scintigraphy or to actually visualize the shunt at surgery so in terms of actually confirming the diagnosis it is quite tricky and could you just um, again for for anyone who's not clear just explain what the bile stimulation test is so Bile acids are made in the liver, mm-hmm. they're stored in the gallbladder, and when you eat a meal, um, cholecystokinin is released, the gallbladder contracts, and the bile acids are re- released into the duodenum, and they are usually um, reabsorbed via the portal vein um, and transported back. That's the enterohepatic circulation. So, um, and 98% of bile acids are, are recirculated in that way. Um, if you have a shunt that's coming off the portal vein, then you can imagine that the bile acids are going to go whizzing off around that shunt and mm. be present in very high levels in patients with shunts. It's not diagnostic of a shunt because other liver diseases that cause portal hypertension and multiple acquired shunts will also cause a high bile acid. Um, but patients with shunts, because that vessel is transporting all those bile acids off around at very high levels, particularly after you fed them postprandially, they'll have very high levels. Um, so, again, I, I don't... You know, I don't know what data we have available, but if you had a 
bilateral stimulation test that was within normal limits or equivocal? That would rule out a shunt. Okay. Yeah, particularly if you did pre and post brandial. What you what you can't do is um, definitively diagnose an animal with a shunt if it has high bilateral, but if it has normal bilateral. It's not going to be shunted. I'm sure there are some statistical terminology that we're supposed it, to be using here. but <laughs> Sensitivity and specificity yeah. is very high for a negative result, but you can have false positives and, and other reasons for having high bile acids. Okay, cool. That's, that's great. Um, and so I guess we, we sort of touched on it already, but if we have a... Uh, you, you said that a lot of the, the cases that you see are ones that come with a high index of suspicion, or you know that's the reason they've been referred. Um, what are you going to do? What investigations are we going to undertake in one of those patients to try and confirm the diagnosis. And you've touched on it already, but I guess if you could just sort of walk us sure. through the, the work. So um, if the patient already comes in with hematology, biochemistry, and bilateral stimulation tests, we wouldn't need to repeat those. But any aspects of those that, that were um, hadn't been performed so far, we, we would um, obviously do. And then we need to do some kind of imaging to confirm the diagnosis and make a plan for surgery. Mm. Um, and in most straightforward cases, we will still often use ultrasound. It's not 100% sensitive and specific, but um, probably 80-90% um, reliable for actually finding a shunt and give us, giving us an idea of what type. Um, so we do that knowing that we actually have intraoptive imaging as well. So as a back, we always have a backup in surgery to know exactly what time of shunt we have. If we suspect an intrahepatic shunt or a complicated shunt, we may also want to do a CT. And, what's, and that's going to give us more a CT angiogram. It's going to give us um, more um, anatomical information about exactly where the shunt is to help us plan the surgery. Okay, cool. Um, and so if we move on and, and talk about the treatment, so we know that there are kind of medical and surgical options. Um, and one of the things we'll talk about in a minute is the appropriateness of one or other of those. But I, I wondered if you could just try and explain a little bit about what we're trying to achieve with medical therapy and what we're trying to achieve with uh, a surgical intervention and I guess kind of the thought processes that one should go through when deciding whether medical therapy or surgical therapy or potentially both are indicated in a patient. Sure. So medical therapy is aimed at damping down the symptoms of hepatic encephalopathy particularly. So patients that come in and they're ataxic, they're depressed, they're possibly seizuring, they have these high levels of ammonia and other substances that have... Um, uh, been brought about by digestion uh, products of, of your meal. And the medical management, lactulose and antibiotics in the first instance, will basically reduce the number of bacteria in the gut, reduce the level of ammonia in the system, and, and actually do quite a good job of just damping down all of those systems. And if necessary, the lactulose can be given by enema as well in emergency to really quickly bring down those levels. So it's very good for stabilizing patients, and it's very good at damping down um, symptoms, but clearly it doesn't stop the blood shunting. Mm. All it does is treat the symptoms. Mm. Whereas surgical treatment is aimed at actually stopping the blood flowing through the abnormal vessel. So it's treating the underlying cause rather than just the symptoms. And um, I'm going to talk to you about a patient that just has a single extrahepatic shunt in a minute, but are there cases where you would go for surgical therapy and then intraoperatively decide that you weren't actually able to definitively achieve something? Are there scenarios like that? Or are they pre-op findings that make you say, well, actually, this is not a patient where surgery is appropriate? Or For all 
all single congenital portosystemic shunts, intra and extra, surgery is recommended because um, the largest um, prospective study to date of medical versus surgical treatment shows that overall, obviously for every individual, pa individual patient there are risks and complications, but overall the survival is longer and the mortality is less if they um, have their shunt um, in some way attenuated at surgery by whatever method rather than just having their symptoms damped down by medical treatment. Okay. The only time we would not operate or, or continue with a surgical plan is if we found multiple acquired shunts which are not amenable to, to surgery. They're not surgical candidates because there are just too many of them and if you tie off one, another one will spring up. Yeah. So those are medically managed. Okay, and um, so intra versus extra, I guess intra is a bit more challenging, but... Definitely. <laughs> As a yeah, non-surgeon. Def no, definitely. And that's why we need good imaging, we need a good plan, and we need good um, facilities in place for looking after those patients. We will always blood type and have blood available, for example, for intrahepatic shunts, whereas we don't routinely do that for extrahepatic shunts because we're not anticipating uh, there to be a major risk of hemorrhage at all with those ones. Um, and we've touched on this already but i guess i want to just press you a little bit on the single extrahepatic shunt and i guess you're saying that that we have evidence to support the fact that surgical intervention is the better option um would i get the same answer from a member of our internal medicine service and secondly um could you just explain the workflow here how we work how you work with the sure. medics in that respect as well um, I think I'm pleased to say that our <laughs> internal medicine, I wouldn't necessarily vouch for all the other universities and um, specialist practices, but here we're all agreed um, that surgery is recommended for single congenital shunts. Mm -hmm. Our only, when we look back at our series, our really our only major cause of mortality is post-operative neurological signs, which is a rare complication and, and nothing specific to the surgery itself unfortunately it's something that we can't control for that much but overall the mortality from that is still less than if you were to treat every patient medically and um I, so i guess the medicine service have some of these cases referred to them in yep. the first instance and yep. so presumably either medicine or surgery will be working up these well, cases what, what or... works quite well is because as i've said medical treatment is good at stabilizing these patients it makes sense because they are higher anesthetic risks they don't have mm. a normally functioning liver mm. it makes sense to stabilize their signs with medical treatment first before they have surgery so often they're worked up by medicine they have some imaging um, and then they're booked back in for surgery um, once they've had a couple of weeks of medical management so usually a couple of weeks is what yep. we're, we're aiming for yep. okay great and um i'm pretty sure we remember situations where that was the plan and then for whatever reason, the patient didn't represent, and then they came back in later having a crisis, and were like, wish you'd come back when you were supposed to come back. Um, now, I guess one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is is levetiracetam, um, sure. because obviously it's a drug that's sort of relatively new in the arsenal, if you like. But I know that um, certainly some of our patients now in, in our hospital are receiving that therapy. And I guess I wondered if you could um, say a little bit about what cases we're using it in and why we're using it. Um, that would be awesome. Sure. So to sort of explain that question, I sort of need to go back one step and just explain that phenobarbitone was our... Um, mainstay anti-epileptic um, neurological symptoms drug for shunt patients before levetiracetam and there was no evidence in the literature that pre-treating any of the patients with phenobarbitone um, reduced the risk of any post-operative neurological symptoms so it was over-treating a lot of patients mm. um, with a drug that 
was potentially not the nicest for the liver um, because phenobarbitone is listed as being hepatotoxic in the formulary. Um, so, but it worked quite well when, when was needed um, after, after surgery to treat neurological signs. We now have levetiracetam, which um, similarly to um, phenobarbitone, is also listed as hepatotoxic <laughs> in the formulary, but it's a much easier drug to deal with in that, um, or administer to patients because it doesn't require loading dose. You can adjust the dose more easily. So it's just a more practical drug. There's no evidence that it's actually any more or less effective than phenobarbitone okay. when we're using it post-surgery. Okay. Um, pre-surgery, um, there was one paper that suggested it might reduce the incidence of seizures in dogs post-optively, but I think it's still too early to say because we know from our patients, and we have a lot, a lot of them, that we'll see no seizures for 50 patients and then three in a row, a bit like buses. And, mm. and the, the numbers in the paper that was published were similar to that. And okay. I can certainly vouch for the fact that we've had patients this year pre-treated with levoterestam that have still seizured after surgery. So I think it's no more or less effective, but slightly easier to dose than phenobarbitone. And um, if this is secret information, then don't tell me about it. But I, I think, are we doing some kind of study on this or not? Is it, um, I might have mis misheard a Not on levetiracetam but... per se, okay. but we've had to um, streamline our protocol for the study that I'll mention in a minute. Okay. And then, therefore, we want to do the same in every patient. So we've decided that there's no disadvantage to pre-treating from the point of admission, which is usually 24 hours pre-surgery, to discharge with levetiracetam. Okay. But we've got no evidence one way or the other about the instance of that. And maybe we'll, we'll find out more from those patients. See, this is one of the things I love patients. about these podcasts is because I, I find out stuff about <laughs> stuff that's going on in the hospital as well. I'm like, so I wonder why they're doing that. Okay, that's it's, great. It's a good and idea to pick a consistent protocol and then we <laughs> no, can absolutely. evaluate what happens. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit um, on the whole post-op thing a little bit later, but um, we don't have a lot of time to kind of go into the detail of the surgical techniques themselves. Um, but I guess if you could give us a brief kind of summary of what the techniques available are. And also, I'm really interested to hear whether this is something that you think vets in practice um, can do, should be doing... Absolutely. So there are three main surgical methods for trying to attenuate the blood vessel. You can either take the old-fashioned first method, which is to get a piece of suture and see if you can completely ligate it. Okay. I can tell you that 50% of extra hepatic shunts um, from our large series of patients will tolerate complete ligation, okay. um, but 50% won't. Um, and therefore you can only partially ligate them. When you say tolerate, what do you mean by tolerate? What I mean is that we will look at the parameters intraoperatively, such as the pressure in the portal vein, whether there's any change in arterial blood pressure and um, venous return, and okay. also look at the color of the splanchnic circulation, which is the pancreas and the guts. And if any of those are complaining about the level of attenuation, we back off until the, the patient is completely happy. So it's a sort of dynamic decision. Exactly, yeah, intraoperatively. Okay, cool. But what's good, although the parameters are, are relatively crude, they work for us very well okay. in that our um, complication rate for portal hypertension post-surgery is zero. So we don't, the parameters seem to work for us quite well. We don't have to go back and loosen ligatures okay. because of um, judgments that are that have been made in surgery. Cool. So that's complete ligation? Yep. Partial ligation? Luckily, what we find is that if we go back on those patients three months later, and it is obviously advised to go back because we know from following up partial patients that if you don't completely ligate them, ultimately their signs will reoccur and okay. they'll have a poorer outcome. But if you do go back three months later, um, about 95 to 99% of them will let you completely ligate the shunt at that point. 
The ones that don't may have multiple acquired shunts. Um, but the good news is that multiple acquired shunts are a relatively low-level complication for the suture method, less than 5% from, from various So degrees. because you have created resistance to flow, the, that causes them yes. to open up other shunts? Yes. Yeah. So or what probably happens is they form a thrombus too quickly, um, and, and that's what happens. It may not necessarily be that it's been tied down too much, but the, just the manipulation of the shunt creates a thrombus and then multiple acquired shunts form. But it's a very low-level complication with suture because we're only pushing it as far as we think the body will take it. Uh, and I realise that I'm completely interrupting your <laughs> explanation of surgical techniques, but um, when we say they, they develop multiple shunts, we're not saying that like they're sprouting a new vessel. Are we saying that there are vessels there that are just not doing anything? There are dormant um, vessels between the systemic and the splanctic circulations, which okay. are normally not opened up. But if you create enough pressure, they will open up. I always thought that was a weird concept. Though. You just it have is these a weird concept, that there, yeah. But... <laughs> it is strange. But we talk about them in all other kinds of scenarios as well. It's like there's a bunch of vessels that do nothing. Luckily, everywhere. they seem to be, anecdotally and sort of reported in studies, milder than having a, a, a single congenital shunt. So they're often still amenable to a good quality of life with medical therapy. We certainly don't euthanize animals with multiple acquired shunts. Okay. Come on, we'll let you carry on now. So, so the other two <laughs> methods, um, try and skip the process of having two surgeries in the partial attenuations and find a method that can progress to complete attenuation with one surgery. So you can either do that by putting an irritant material such as cellophane around the shunt and hoping that progressive scarring and fibrosis completely occludes the shunt, or you can put a special device called an amyloid constrictor that is a metal ring with a key that has a material called casein inside, which on contact with fluid swells, and the idea is gradually occludes the shunt. Okay. Unfortunately, what has been proven is that it doesn't gradually occlude the shunt. It usually occludes the shunt by thrombus formation. Okay. Um, it's so irritant that it causes a thrombus. So actually, the rate of attenuation with an amyloid can be quite quick, um, it's not quick enough to, to cause a major life-threatening portal hypertension situation, but it's suggested that the rate of multiple acquired shunts is higher with amyloids for that very reason. And um, is, is the amyloids not, not a brand name? It's the name for the thing, yes. and then it's made by different people. Exactly. Okay, and um, so the sort of in-between scenario is potentially, um, if you're going to pick a gradual attenuation method, I think, the cellophane band uh, or the cellophane um, material would seem to be the the, the, the sort of the, the best alternative at the moment. Um, um, but so no one knows, and there is no evidence to suggest that any method, amyloid, cellophane, or ligature, one is better than the other because we don't know. No one has done comparison studies finding out what the rate of multiple acquired shunts is one versus the other with the three methods, or what the long term outcome is between the three methods. <laughs> So different people pick different things, yeah. and the, the results are fairly similar, but no one has got evidence for one or the other. And so what do we do here? So what we do here, um, and this is related to the question on, on actually where our, our study is going, we don't deny any animal that can tolerate a complete ligation the benefit of that, because clearly if they can tolerate complete ligation, it doesn't make sense to only put a gradual occlusion device mm. on. We might as well allow them to benefit from that. So all of the ones that can tolerate that get complete suture. The ones that can only tolerate a partial ligation, because we don't know which is the best method, we are currently... Um, conducting a randomized prospective study where we draw out of an envelope whether they will then get a cellophane band or a suture. 
And we also leave a backup suture in those cases so that when we go back at three months, they all get ultimately a complete occlusion, but we get to assess the rate of multiple acquired chance between the two methods and the rate of complete occlusion between the two methods. So even if they've had a cellophane band, you still need to go back and check? Is that that's what we're doing currently we're doing because moment. that's our, our normal protocol and that will enable us to see does the cellophane band actually produce complete occlusion because it doesn't in all cases and that's the the idea that it should but it doesn't and what's the difference in the rate of multiple acquired chance between the two methods which which no one knows and uh, the interval between the two surgeries is about three months yeah it's an arbitrary time but that's the time we've always used and we find that if we go back at three months a we can normally completely occlude them and b if they're going to have multiple acquired chance they've developed them by then and um, again, it's a tangent question away, but important nonetheless. Um, from a client point of view in terms of the, the payment for the, yeah. this procedure, um, what's the sort of cost comparison between the first procedure and the second procedure um, versus having a, you know, a potential progressive attenuation technique that means they don't need two procedures? Or- so if they have a complete ligation, they don't need a second surgery um, and the costs of the, the procedure and the consultation, everything with uh, that, that surgical consult are usually about £2,500. If they need a second procedure, unfortunately, even though they're much safer anaesthetics and the risk of complication is almost zero in terms of neurological signs at the second surgery, the cost is similar because all the anaesthetics, all the equipment and everything mm the length of the procedure is similar we will often neuter patients at the second surgery at the same time um, but it does double the cost having two procedures Mm. okay cool well and um that's great so i think the thing that we've touched on already a few times and you know i've certainly we over the years have seen um a number of post-op patients in icu and we know that it's a very small percentage of these cases, but that some of them can be quite neurological, and that can vary, you know, sometimes to seizuring. Um, and I guess there's a lot of discussion about what are the mechanisms behind the phenomenon, how do we tend to treat them. There's often a bit of discussion about are you neurological from your shunt, are you neurological from dysphoria. They're some of the most challenging patients, I think, in ICU to understand what was going on with them and to know what's best to do for them. So I guess if you could just sort of make some comments on your perspective of that post-op period would be great. Yes. So as you say, it is quite a rare complication to put it in perspective, but I do spend a lot of time counselling owners about it because it can be potentially life-threatening. Only about 5 to 10% patients will show neurological signs, and some of them will be very mild and easily treatable. Mm. And it's actually quite rare for us to still actually lose a patient from neurological signs. What we tend to do is monitor them very, very closely, And if there is any, even half a twitch or a movement that suggests that they might possibly be tremoring or neurological, we will come in very hard with extra anti-epileptics. If they're already on levetiracetam, we'll add in phenobarbitone, for example. If they're not on anything, we'll start loading straight away. There doesn't seem to be a disadvantage from having... um, aggressive phenobarbitone or levetiracetam treatment afterwards versus not getting in there promptly enough. It definitely seems to be, although no one has enough of these patients to really be able to to tell Mm. us, seems to be a good idea to get in there early before things deteriorate. And if we we do get in promptly and aggressively, um, then often we'll still be able to treat the neurological signs and ultimately they can make a full recovery. If 
the phenobarbitone or oral levetiracetam isn't working or isn't enough, we go to injectables. And if those drugs aren't working, we can even anesthetize the patient with propofol at a very light level, just enough to, to damp down the signs. Um, and sometimes we can even have them on an infusion for 24, 48 hours and then try and bring them back around without seizuring um, and, after Like, do that. we know... Um, it's a really stupid question, but do we know... Why do they have those neuroscience? So if you're saying to me, well, look, we're doing this ligation yep. procedure, in inverted commas, yep. attenuation procedure, that's a word. And the idea is that we reduce sure. the phenomenon that's going on in them. Yeah. I guess one would think that surely the situation would be better and not potentially yep. exacerbated yep. for a while. But what, what are the, do we know what's going on there? Um, I can't tell you what's causing them. I can tell you what's not causing them. So it's not hepatic encephalopathy because it occurs in patients that um, have had a complete ligation and therefore are not shunting. It occurs in patients sometimes that have literally only been anaesthetized for imaging and haven't actually had surgery. It occurs in patients where an amyloid constrictor has been placed and the shunt hasn't been attenuated in any way. Um, so it's really hard. We know that when we measure ammonia, bile acids, electrolytes, glucose, blood pressure, none of those have been correlated to um, seizuring afterwards. Mm -hmm. And even more disappointingly, when we looked at our series of cats, we found that seizuring beforehand wasn't cor correlated to developing these afterwards. They were seizuring beforehand because of the hepatic encephalopathy but they're seizuring afterwards for a different reason. And what the current assumption is, even though we don't know what the mechanism is, that for whatever reason, when we fix them or improve them at surgery, they are adjusted to their certain level of dysfunction, as it were. And when you improve things, there's a, a rebalancing act that has to go on within mm. the brain um, and that that period of transition can set off neurological signs and even seizures. Which intuitively, kind of, you can believe. Um, so, at the moment, all yeah. we do is treat symptomatically with anti-epileptics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, like I say, I, I've, you know, I think we sometimes um, in ICU will sometimes find these patients, like you say, they're pretty rare, the ones that get very bad, but there can be a challenge, and, and a challenge to know, like, I think, you know, what, um, what's best to be done for them. Because I guess we're not really keen on the whole phenomenon of polypharmacy, right? We try as much as possible. Although some people look at ICU people and they get lots of drugs. But we, uh, I think we don't like to just give more drugs unless we feel that they're indicating we're going to I do think, something. Uh, I, I think that's a good principle and certainly I wouldn't recommend overloading these patients before surgery because you'd be overloading 90% of patients that don't need it but once mm. once they show any symptom towards this then because it's such a serious complication with a mortality rate I think throwing the polypharmacy at them <laughs> is a good um, method and has served us well over the years. Cool um, and then you've sort of touched on it already but I guess I also wanted to use this opportunity both for you to share with the listeners but also for me to get an update on kind of um, are we doing any clinical research here on portal systemic shunts or if not do we have any plans that you're aware of going forward? Sure as I said we have um, a study at the moment prospective study comparing cellophane band versus proline suture in partial attenuation patients to try and find out scientifically once and for all whether there actually is a difference in, in outcome and complications between the two methods so that we have some evidence upon which to decide how we evolve our practice should we go to placing cellophane band on all our patients or um, 
is it better to stick with the the, altern- the original method? And uh, I guess two questions really. One is, do we have a, a sample size that we're trying to achieve? Yep. And second question is, what, what are our sort of outcome sure. measures that we're using? Based on a, a sort of pilot data from um, a, a paper in Australia that looked at um, rates of multiple acquired shunts and complete occlusion following cellophane ban, and we compared that to what we have in our study, we looked at having about 12 to 15 dogs in each group, which should be achievable for us over three or four years. Okay. And what are we using as sort of outcome kind of measures? So when we go back at three months, using our intraoperative fluoroscopy and portovinography, we will be actually able to document the rate of complete occlusion with the two methods and the rate of multiple acquired shunts. Cool. And um, I guess are are we saying if we find sufficient evidence to justify not going back to revisit a cellophane banned patient that we would stop doing that? Absolutely, because we'd all like to go towards one surgery, Mm. but not at the cost of a higher level of multiple acquired shunts or Mm. residual shunting because actually the cellophane isn't completely occluding and then they're having recurrences long-term. And um, so um, are you aware of patients, I mean, there must be some, but are you aware of some that, you know, that had some kind of procedure done eight years ago? And represented clinical for poor systemic shunt or, or not? Um, when I, I'm, I'm making up an the, Well, the, the, time, se- the series I remember is when I followed up our cats, 50 cats, there were some patients that didn't come back after a partial because obviously they just decided they didn't want to. And mm. one cat represented clinically seven years after his partial. In dogs, the average time to recurrence of clinical signs after partial ligation is three years. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I think that's... Yeah, I think that's pretty much comprehensively covered everything I wanted to ask you. Um, Was there anything else that you feel we haven't covered that you wanted to say today? I don't think so, but thanks for inviting me. Come on down, have some surgery. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's really cool because I think shunts are one of those things. I I would advise people not to be scared of the surgery. Actually, in the big scheme of things, has a relatively low mortality and complication rate. I know what we didn't talk about. We can't, I can't ask you, but we didn't answer it, was about doing these yes, procedures yeah. in practice. And, um, and actually, what I think is the answer to that question is not... It is a complex surgery, and to illustrate that, I would say that our surgeons' residents in training, it's something that we would still supervise them until the end of their residencies with. Um, and it's not a very common surgery to do, and as with all these things, it's easier to get better at things you see frequently, mm. and um, we see, obviously, a relatively um, good number, and I'm still learning. Um, but quite apart from the surgical side of things, the particular thing about shunt surgery is you also need a good anaesthetist team because um, these are not straightforward patients mm. to anaesthetize, and a good critical care team because they need very close monitoring, particularly for neurological signs and treatment signs, and that's as important, if not more important, than the actual surgery. Um, and I guess if you don't have that intra-op imaging, that, that's going to pose you some... Um, certainly for intrahepatic shunts, I wouldn't want to be without it. I think it's absolutely critical, and certainly you'd have to have a very good preoperative CT if you didn't. With extrahepatic shunts, you can usually visualise the vessel. We we enjoy having the extra information, mm. um, but you're, you could... Um, get away with it as it were you know what you're doing without <laughs> i'm sitting here thinking shunt. i'm sure i would but with the, the intrahepatic shunts it's invaluable it really is invaluable mm. excellent great um 
So look, thank you very much for coming along and joining me today. And as I always say to everyone, I'll, I'll leave you alone for a while and I'll come back and ask you to do something, something else. Um, and to the listeners, as always, and do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. And also let me know if there are any clinical topics that you would uh, really like a podcast on. So you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page um, where there is an album that contains information about and also links to the podcast. And you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And the last thing, as always, is that if you are enjoying listening to this podcast series and you have access to iTunes, uh, it would be great if you could take a minute to rate the podcast and maybe write a comment. But even just rating them would be great. So until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.